0: Hey, and welcome to the Entrepreneur's Ecosystem Podcast, where we aim to help you, the big-hearted change maker with a bold vision to build a business that gives you butterflies and a life that makes you want to high-five yourself. How? By addressing the interconnected nature of all that you do. From marketing to mindset and everything in between, we believe your business is more ecosystem than monoculture and that when it comes to creating sustainable success, it's all connected and there is no one size fits all formula. Join us for conversations that embrace nuance, elevate the importance of empathy and address the diverse and unique strengths that enable entrepreneurs to not just make money, but to make real, lasting, positive change in a regenerative and revolutionary way.
1: Hello, and welcome back to the Entrepreneur's Ecosystem. We are stoked to have a fellow Canadian gal on the pod today, Jay McGrain. Jay helps course creators and coaches increase the earning potential from their online courses. At heart, she's most passionate about getting results for anyone in an online course and believes that we can improve the impact of online courses and make more money doing it. Welcome, Jay. I am so glad you are here, partially because I'm like, Shanti, you need to hear all this stuff Jay has been talking about to me. So I'm going to invite her onto the pod.
0: Yeah, I'm relaunching my own course soon. So Mm -hmm. super selfishly, like, how can
2: I make this so much better? Mm -hmm. Which is always the best place to be right? Like hundred percent, the best place to be, how can I make this so much better for the people that are going to get results from what I'm doing? Right. Mm.
1: I think it's the yeah. second best place to be because I've been really ruminating on this lately and it's totally selfish, but I think the best place to be is to be an affiliate for a really excellent course. <laughs> because, <laughs> you know. By the way, I'm affiliating for Johnny's course, uh, but because then you don't have to like create all the content. You can just like help the people who need it, find it. Um, and you don't have to be like shot to you. It's like, I need to re-record because I need a new hat in these videos. <laughs> My hat is so 2019 and or 2018 or whatever. Yeah. Jay, I think one of the reasons that you are so excellent to talk about this is actually because your background is in teaching. Right. And, uh, Shandy and I worked with Casey Morris, who teaches teachers how to have teaching businesses. Um, And I just think there's so much that online course creators can learn from teachers who have like teaching degrees and deal with like, you know, students in real time, in real life on the regular. So yeah, thanks so much for coming and and talking about how to actually get people into your course and then to take your course and then how to like get them the next steps is what I understand um, based Mm -hmm. on based on what you learn about them. But can we start with our uh, question that we ask everyone always, uh, unless we forget, which is, do you resonate with any or all personality quizzes or ways of um, putting people into buckets? And if so, which ones?
2: I mean, I do love a good personality quiz. I can't. Lie about that, and I think one of the reasons I'm a freelance writer is uh they made us take that like gallop strengths finder at one point, and I came back really strong as a learner that I really like to learn new things, and um I also took the enneagram because John told me to at one point, and I also came back as I think the number five, which is also a strong learner, so I was getting a little bit. Bored in the classroom because one of the ways you find efficiencies as a teacher is to do the same project multiple years in a row. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was always changing my mind about things. (laughs) So I definitely have felt myself in personality testing situations, right? And I just, it can be so much fun. And then you learn about yourself and it just, it just makes you feel good about who you are. And then you can like help, I don't know, build your identity in a new, fun way and maybe uncover a little bit, maybe what you. Are denying about yourself because I think I denied that for a really long time about myself. So it was helpful to kind of be given the freedom, being like, "Oh yeah, that is who you are like that that is that does resonate for you. You are allowed to feel that."
0: Yeah, yeah. Strengths Finder. I think I'm a high learner too. Mm,
2: me too.
0: I think yeah. that's my top five. Mm-hmm. And if, and five on the Enneagram. Yeah, you can see I can see how you'd get bored.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Do the same thing over and over or explain the same concepts over and over. But the kids don't. Right. Like I had a grade six class. I taught them in grade five and I got them in grade six and they'd missed a project in grade five because of the pandemic. The school closed and they got to grade six. And I was like, so what do you want to do this year? And they're like, you didn't do the egg drop project last year. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry that we missed the egg drop project. (laughs) Right and they're like no we have to do the egg drop project I'm like it's not in the grade six curriculum like I don't care get me an egg I'm dropping an egg madam because I teach a bunch of
1: so Ugh. I'm dropping an egg and this is happening is that like gravity like a gravity thing like where everyone makes a parachute? Uh, yeah
2: it was in their simple machines unit they would build like a little egg a helmet or whatever for your egg and then you would drop the egg and see if your egg exploded or not um I can tell you that most eggs did not explode. It was actually a relatively rare egg. And the, my favorite part of that project would be the poor kid would they would like they'd be like, "Yes, it worked." And then they try to get the egg out of their little egg helmet and then break it. Mm. I want to do this project.
1: <laughs> I feel like Mav would really be into it.
2: Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. So yeah I did Go it at the science center movie. with my 5-year-old too and her egg did not crack. So you can totally just grab yourself a few little like sponges and they just wrap them up around their egg. And yeah, you know, it's a good reason also to be like, this is why you should wear your helmet when you're biking. Mm. Yes. Oh
0: yeah. That's a great analogy. Yeah. Have you seen the TikToks where you give a tot like a, not even a toddler, but like a baby or like my son, I call him a baby, a toddler, baby, you give them an egg and they don't, they, they just protect the egg. You're just like, <laughs> Wander around with the egg. And they do. And it's so cute. Like someone Some, look that some up. innate thing, like protects the egg. <laughs> At all costs. Oh, I'm a bird. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay. So, Jay, you're out of the classroom now, but you're still doing a lot of work in the teaching space. But here we are, online education. And the state of things is so drastically different from, I'm sure, like formal education, being a teacher in a classroom, like we've got completion, completion rates, which is sort of an arbitrary thing, but completion rates, success rates that are
2: pretty dismal. Aren't they awful? Yeah. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Well, this is probably an unpopular opinion, but I do think that just like open rates for email marketers, completion rates are a vanity metric. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think they're a vanity metric just because of how our brains work. So when we design online courses, and this actually came across my email from another kind of a coach of like helping coaches create intellectual property. He's like, you know, you should think about your hardest coaching client. And that's how you should design your course with that person in mind to give them all the steps. And some people do need all the steps. Mm. But I think we've all had the frustrating experience of not needing all the steps in an online course. And it's one reason why instructional designers now are actually taught not to lock navigation where you force people to go through it step by step. Because very few of us as adults have minds that even kids don't have minds that go step by step by step. That's not how learning works. That's not how our brains work, right? That's just not how our neural connections function. Um, So it's it's one person might need all the steps, but another person might, you know, come in at 30% and need you to take them to 100. Another person might come in, you know, at 80% and need you to take them to 100, right? They might just need that last little bit to really shine and get the result that they want, Cause that's really like, none of us, I don't think any of us are, I don't anyways, none of us are in online courses usually to be like, I just can't wait to watch that online course video. You know, like they're not like very few of us are like at that point, right. We'd rather be on YouTube and we want the result. So it's about getting someone to the point where they need to be to get the result based on what their neural pathways have done in their, whatever kind of other things they've done in their life have created all these like neural pathways of how they've learned things and how they put things together. And instead of thinking of our learning as kind of going step by step by step, it's really trying to fit its way into their already existing neural pathways. And um, do you want me to get really technical? Probably not. That's yeah. what Dawn does. does. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Neural pathways, all of it, technical, go for it.
2: <laughs> okay. Um, so when you think about expertise, like the your brain only has about five, can only hold about five to seven new things at a time. So when someone is an expert, what they've done is they've packaged their expertise. So their brain isn't holding five to seven new things when they're doing something. Their brain has a bunch of packaged responses that it's putting together so that when it looks at something, it can do it that much faster. Um, Math is a really good, really easy example to think about or reading. Um, But math, one of the reasons why you want kids to be able to, you know, say three plus seven equals 10 and to know it at that level, rather than having to put their fingers up and count to 10 is so they can be able to do things like three digit, um addition and just know it, right? And it's the similar thing for adults. We just do it at a way higher, higher level, obviously, right? As writers, like I don't think any of us here are really thinking about our paragraph structure as writers anymore. But there was a time in our lives when we had to think about our paragraph structure, right? Or even like now that we know like persuasive sorts of techniques and things like that, you know, I probably have started to write and, you know, problem agitate solution way more naturally than I did a year and a half ago when Joanna, we first started talking to me about problem agitate solution, right? I kind of started to really think about that. And this started to become a competency that I have as a packaged kind of response of where my expertise has started to live so it really starts to depend on adult learner what expertise do they already have how is your course fitting into that expertise rather than oh have they watched module one up to module five well and
0: that's a really interesting point that our brains can only hold five to seven new things at a time and when does consolidation occur? In terms of learning something new and actually like knowing it, does that occur through practice, through repetition,
2: through like? Yeah, there's something really famous called the forgetting curve. And I'm blanking on whose research it's based on. But if you look up the forgetting curve, it's really steep that I think you forget like 80% within days. And that's one of the reasons why big learning companies now want to like retest people. And it's another reason why, um, most medical professionals get worse at their job over time, Mm. except for surgeons. Surgeons have a tendency to get better because they have such automatic feedback Mm. coming back to them. Right. So part of that isn't only about repetition, but about how fast you can get a feedback loop going, which is probably one of the reasons why writers have editors so that you can get a really strong feedback loop going and the closer it is to I mean it makes you kind of sound like a dog but in reality I mean, that is kind of learning works right like the, the closer it is to the the closer the feedback loop is to the consequence the faster you're gonna learn it
1: mm. yeah this is cool
0: okay that is that is so interesting so feedback loops all right I'm really curious about this in the context of even my own course because there's a lot of steps involved before someone gets to the finish line where like they're experiencing results. They're experiencing like the neurochemical release of dopamine and like, I did it. I'm here. I've, I've done the thing and I'm quote unquote successful. Like there are so much that has to happen before they get to that point. And from a course design perspective, Am I setting them up for failure if that road is too long before they get to that point? Or do you recommend building in like micro, micro wins where maybe there's like feedback loops feeding into other feedback loops? I think micro loops are
2: always great. Like I think micro, sorry, micro loops and micro wins are always great. Right. I think that's why we love to-do lists so much. Right. Like I think that's just never a bad thing. I think it starts to become a, like, how, how much can you automate that? And how much is it on your time as the course creator too? Right. And adults don't always love having a ton of hand holding either. So that's the other question is and how how fast can they do the steps? Right. Like I don't think like you can definitely get a gamified little board going and a badging and all that jazz. I don't think people ever not don't like that, right? Like I think we're all happy to get a good badge, right? But at the same time, it has to be meaningful, right? It's like what what are those milestones that they need to hit that are meaningful, and at what points? I think it's much more interesting to think both ways. To think like so, I build a lot around aha moments and blocks or success conditions. But the first thing to say, like, at what point are they going to get what you know value? When are they going to feel value? So even if they're not feeling a result yet, when do they feel value? Mm. Right? Like, and sometimes we think of it as a magic wand moment. I think of aha moments. Usually they like the easy ones list, um, exist outside of their learning, where usually they can do something they haven't been able to do before. So if I'm, I don't know, what would be an easy one for an adult suddenly able to cook a turkey? right? And it's Thanksgiving, which is in Thanksgiving soon, right? If I'm suddenly, I haven't been able to cook a turkey and this is my first year and i cook my family a turkey and I follow your video, I'm going to feel really great when I open, like I cut open my turkey and my turkey has functioned as a turkey should. I'm like, oh yes, this turkey is what I wanted it to be. That's kind of like one aha moment. And then the other aha moment is the epiphany moment, that kind of mind blowing moment. And those often happen during the course, right? Where you're on the video and you hear something you're like, oh, "I never thought of that before, and like you feel that mind-blowing moment and that you start to feel value at that point. So it's not only about getting them feedback, but also thinking about where where are those aha moments for you for your students, right? Like does it happen when they choose their quiz topic? Does it happen when they um realize who their audience is? Does it happen the first moment they finally get, you know, their results decided? Um, mine for my quiz at one point, I went through um, some quiz training and it was mine. It was when I had kind of connected some of my offers to it was I was like, oh, mm-hmm. quizzes are like my results are my offers. That was one of my aha moments for quizzes where I was like, what, really? And then I was like, oh, that means if they're my offers, then I can like sell things off of this. <laughs> and I had, I knew that I could sell off of it, but those are my offers. Oh, so if this is the offer, then this is the result they need. <gasps> right. Like at mm. that point, I was like, I was like, oh, that's amazing. So that's why they convert. Right. Yes. yes. Right. Yes. Like, yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if that answered your
1: question fully. Yeah, it did. For me, anyway. And I also remember when you were like having those aha moments, um, because we were in Amy Posner's Magnetic Mind together. So I had like taught about quizzes and then she went into interact and did the coaching. And I remember, I remember seeing that light up. And I have like asked you before, like, hey, but what, like, intuitively, I have an idea of what an aha moment is, but what is it in relation to a course? So I think that's really interesting. And Shanti, yeah, I feel like in the past, lots of your students have those aha moments in coaching and also because like Shanti does coaching each month, but also uh, like in the research, like when they realize, like when they, because so, I mean, it's one thing if you're like, you've got a copy school kid who's now taking Grow With quizzes and is like, oh, this isn't all brand new to me. But like when you have these like entrepreneurs who are just learning how to write copy at the same time as writing their quiz and you are teaching them and they're like, oh, wait, I can go out and research to find voice of customer. or Like, I don't think you say it exactly like that, but that is like, And then with quizzes in general, not that we're here to talk about quizzes, but I think like an aha moment for quizzes is when they, people realize that like the, the zero party and the first party data that they're gathering is like almost more important than the amount of leads that they're getting. Like, there's like a huge aha of like, what's really important is less than like adding, you know, a thousand new subscribers to your list is like, getting the information from those people about who they are and what they want and, and, and all that jazz. And I know, and I'm not trying to jump forward. I don't even know what's in our questions, but I know that like, um, po- like using a quiz in launch as well as using a quiz to onboard is something that you talk about too, right, Jane?
2: Yeah, I, um, I, I'm a bit of an assessment nerd. I like, I'm starting to joke that you can take the teacher out of the school, but like you can never take the school out of the teacher. Mm-hmm. And so every time I kind of look at segmentation from marketing and I started to think really deeply about segmenting within a course versus marketing segmentation, because our marketing segments can sometimes be really broad. You know, we put people like, I don't know, freelancers, and, you know, team, team change people. Right. And I don't know, other digital marketers might be some of our segments or I don't know, transitioning teachers could be a segment. But whatever your course happens to be on, maybe it's like those cookie, turkey, like turkey cooking people. And maybe they have home cooks and, you know, chef cooks. I don't know. Um, let me like bring it back down to what I was actually trying to say about meaningful segmentation for learners. But within those segments, they can be really similar, but they can have one or two qualities that, or even external constraints that become super important. So I guess like if you're thinking about freelancers, you could have somebody who has two freelancers and maybe you teach them to go become more visible to get more leads because they're looking for leads. And one of them does really well and the other one does terribly. And you're like, well, why? We taught the same thing. You're supposed to get visible. And you look at them, you're like, oh, yeah, but they both have, you know, like they both made $60,000 last year. They're both freelancers. They both are email copywriters. They both had a feast and famine section. Like, why did one do great and one didn't? And then maybe you realize that one of them only worked on retainer and they're, you know, when they lost a big retainer, they experienced famine and the other one worked on referral. And when that person was working on referral, they feasted and famined too, but they probably had a better network. So mm-hmm. when you told them to go get visible, the person working on referral was all of a sudden able to tap their network and become visible. The person working on retainer who'd maybe only cold pitch to get those retainers was like, I don't have a network, I don't even to tap, and is still sitting there trying to cold pitch people, mm-hmm. right? And you can kind of see how that one thing, even though they look so similar on the surface, that one like even business model can be game changing for them. So it's kind of like what are those external constraints, constraints for your audience? And for your learners to try to figure out what, what will, what, what strategy is going to push them and how, but if you could hopefully distill that down to one or two questions for them in a quiz, then you could help them figure out how to, you know, to overcome some of those external constraints to their situation.
0: And this is within the course.
2: Well, you could do it like, it, I mean, really, I went down to one question. I just had all I would need for that one. If I take my two freelancers. The only thing that differentiated them was one worked on referral and one worked on retainer. So I could have that in a launch quiz and say, what's your business model? And I could say, work on retainer, Mm -hmm. work by referral, um, work on project basis, like with leads from your social media, work on, I don't know what another business model would be there on digital courses.
0: You could do it at any point, but it would be pulling in that knowledge into the course so that you can ensure you address that external constraint. Yeah.
2: And then you just put them down the
0: right learning path. So you talked about blocks and how you work a lot with blocks and like Mm -hmm. overcoming a block. Would you say an
2: external constraint is similar to a block? Like, what's that really? I honestly. I'm still working it out as I think it through. Is maybe you guys can help me because I haven't fully decided in that regard. And sometimes my language I'm finding is like kind of shifting as I move through things is that people tend to understand what a block is really easily. So I started to use that because we feel blocked. Right. And, um, we tend to understand what an external constraint might look like. So it probably just starts to depend on how dialed in you've gotten your, your learner journey. Right. And just how much, you know, about exactly what happens along the way you can get more and more dialed in the more you know. And right, your questions can get closer and closer to being on point. It probably just starts to depend on how how closely you've worked with that and how much you've decided to scaffold it or not, right? Because don't forget that as much as like, I love to geek out on this, adults are really good at learning usually. If they want to know something, they're gonna figure it out, right? This is why we can sell such terrible courses to university students, the stakes are so high that a university student is going to crank out a 75 or a 65, anything over a 50, (laughs) really, no matter what you kind of like, what you give them, because they're just like, I'm going to do this, right? To a certain extent, our adult learners are the same. If they think it's, if their intent is high enough and the relevance is high enough for them, they're going to learn what they need to learn, right? Whether they're going to refer your program, though, is questionable, yeah. Okay.
0: This is an interesting point. I don't know if you would ever talk about course pricing and the
2: psychology behind that. Like, are you into that at all? I am. I'm getting into it. I think the more my audience talks to me about and my clients sort to of be like, what should I price this at? I think I'm definitely getting get there. <laughs> I just,
0: I sometimes think about it in comparison or contrast to to like post-secondary education and other avenues that adults would go down to learn something. And, and we see like courses in post-secondary being just like, I mean, all over the map, but often a whole lot more than what you'd see in the online space. And, and not always, right? Like sometimes there's really super affordable, awesome courses available through colleges and universities, but. Yeah. And just in terms of pricing, I I think about how when I raised the price of my course, students became more committed and the follow through was there to a higher degree than it was before. Yeah. I just think that that, that's fascinating and can influence too. Mm, Yeah. I think it completely
2: can. Right. And depending on how valuable it is afterwards, Right. Being able to say that I have a master's degree from Queen's University felt very valuable at the time, even though ironically I didn't pay for that. I was fully on scholarship for that degree. Um, But you know, being able to say that, you know, feels very important. Right. When, you know, it depends, I think, on the prestige of the person. But I think you're completely right that the follow-through does the more you've paid for something, the more likely it is that you want it and the more higher your commitment is. So then the question from marketing becomes like, how committed do you want someone to be? There may be offers at of which you don't want a huge level of commitment because you want the largest part of your audience to get in on it, right? There's other offers where you want maximum commitment, right? Especially if you're gonna be like on a long mastermind with somebody, like, think about that. I don't know if I would want to just accept sight unseen into my, I don't even have a mastermind. If I had a six to nine month mastermind, would I really want someone to plunk down there, whatever that would cost $6,000 or whatever, or $9,000 on their credit card, and then just show up on the first mastermind and the first time I meet them? Probably not, right? Because I'm putting a lot of my time and energy into that mastermind, right? So it's like kind of, it's about, I think that psychology works for you. To decide where, what do you want your course to be? Is this like, because like it's still marketing, right? Like, is it a filter? Am I filtering out? Like, you know, even if you have, uh, I don't know, some of those really dismal statistics, if only 10% of people are going to buy again, well, if I have a very $9, you know, membership, well, maybe I do want 5,000 people in that $9 membership. And it's okay with me if only 10% of them buy again, or only 10% of them ever move up because, well, I want the maximum number in there trying to get a result for them so they trust me and they move up, you know, if I have that luxury of having an Ascension model, right? So yes, I think pricing is is like, of course, of course it's important, right? And how we think about pricing affects, I think what we can do and the types of experiences we can offer in our courses, right? Because if you have something that's really low priced, can you really offer all the high touch things that you might want to, can you afford some of the, you know, platforms you might want to afford? Like, you know, because we talked about gamification, like those tech platforms do start to add up, right? So what, like, what types of, like, how much is it going to cost you to fulfill as well becomes the question of as you regard to price, not only about what what can they afford, but what can you give for that price, right? I, I don't think, like, it comes down to offer ecosystem to a certain extent.
0: Yeah, yeah. And do you have opinions, thoughts on, you mentioned Ascension model, offer ecosystem? Like, what does that mean to you? And when you work with course creators, are you working with them on developing that? Like, what does that look like? I
2: think that, like, as copywriters, people do, and maybe you guys experience this too, that people do ask me about their pricing model pretty consistently. Um, It depends on where they're at, right. And what they've developed usually is where I'm working with them. Um, I have like done some consults for people on like what, what their courses are doing and things like that and what they want out of them. And so I think the answer is yes, (laughs) in a long way. Uh, And then as for an Ascension model, I think it probably depends on what you're doing, I do think I probably have started to pretty strongly believe that launches are so stressful, ads are so expensive, that why wouldn't you have at minimum two courses or at minimum some sort of a back-end offer? Right. Like these very, you know, even if it's just a membership that is an invite only to the people that have worked with you already. Like some of these are just not that hard to create and are minimal work and at the cost of putting someone into your ecosystem, why wouldn't you at least do that? you know? And, um, at that point, cause like I have also some people really, they like to, really I think it depends on how people have developed their stuff, right. Is how much energy they put in certain places. Is like lots of people end up developing kind of their big signature course and then kind of moving down is I think the one that I've seen most often. So it really depends, I think, yeah, it all depends, right. It depends, I think on what you're doing, but I mean, if you want maximum impact for your audience, well, I think you do want low ticket offers and medium ticket offers and high ticket offers, just like you want in any business, right? I want to be able to give that to people. And I hopefully want them to get value at each offer and the value that they need, right? Because um, funny story actually about leads and sales is at one point I was having a leads crisis and I started following some sales professionals. And I was like, oh yeah, I can do all this stuff with AI, yada, yada, yada. And it's going to be so cool. And then my cooperative friend went, she's like, don't you think that's just like overkill? For what you need, don't you think you can just get the same effect by, you know, manually doing some of this stuff? I'm like, oh, yeah, maybe, right? And not everybody's going to go to the top mm-hmm. of your offer either, right? Like, not everybody's going to need to do that. They might get enough, just like, you know, copy school kids, right? Maybe people, some people go into copy school and they just get enough after you know, being able to write a few emails. Other people, you know, go to copy school and they go through all of it or large portions of it, right? So I think it depends on how they're moving through that, right? As long as they're getting value and getting a result every time, mm. then you've done what you can do, right? Because there will be churn.
1: So can we talk about that a little bit, the learner journey? And I think that um, this might be something that is spoken about way more in school than it is in like digital course creators who are like, I'm an expert in a thing. I'm going to teach other people how to do it. And then they just like make the course, launch it. And how do you have any advice? Hmm, What am I trying to ask? Can we talk about the learner journey? And do you have any advice for course creators on how to start gathering data about what their learner journey might look like? You know, I have really love doing
2: some live stuff in like, especially if you're just starting the signature course, that I think the best way to start to uncover a learner journey is to start doing live stuff that there is a live component there because they're just going to give you such great feedback live. And then you can evergreen that feedback. But that to start gathering it first would be to start gathering it live, right? And And then if you can also... Just like you do for other things, you you know take that voice of customer. You can review mine your own testimonials to see what they say. You can do customer interviews to ask them about what was challenging, and then you can look at those metrics. Right? Look at where do they go first? Would be a really good one to start looking at. Of like, okay, why are certain? And then you can put it together with the data you already know about them. Depending on how many of them you have. You can put together, especially if you've had a quiz running at the start, put together what you know about that person with where they've gone first. That's a really great way to think like, okay, what do they need first? Well, they're going here. As long as your stuff's unlocked, they're gonna kind of gravitate to certain areas um, somewhat naturally. And then you can start to kind of helpfully push them along. And then there's some places where you might know that people need certain things. That, you know, not only from data, but just from your own experience with doing it. Although sometimes what I find as like when I've designed stuff is sometimes when I've taken it to its like step-by-step level, my learners actually, even my kids would come in backwards almost. So I would have to go this like one, two, three, four, five. And sometimes my learners could come in at like four of that step. And then they would just fill in what they needed. So sometimes I think when you think about your learner journey is to think about the result first, it's another easy way to think about it. The really fast way to so like, what's the result they want to do? They want to make a sales call, then start with the sales call, right? Mm-hmm. So start like, this is your sales call framework. This is how you get on the call. And then break down bits of that, um, places where, you know, people might have trouble. Right. And as you do your coaching calls, they're going to tell you where they've had trouble. You're going to know from your previous coaching experience or even from your own experience of what caused you difficulty. And then if you're like, oh, um, pricing causes difficulty, well, then you have a pricing module. But you've first explained getting through the sales call. So if all they see is how to do a sales call. Great. They've seen that. They've had that like idea of how to do that. So you can start kind of as close to the result as possible and then help them move backwards. That's one way to do it. And you find that simply by deciding what is that transformative result, right? And then try to to start them as close to it as you can and then allow them to move backwards depending on how complex it is. But yeah, I think, yeah, we'll distill it down to like two things. Start live and then listen to their questions. Do your voice of customer research on your own testimonials and your customer surveys, customer interviews. And then as you design, get them as close to the result that they want as possible, as soon as possible, and then allow them to fill in what pieces they need.
0: Yeah, it's cool that you say, take the constraint off of like, don't necessarily have them follow the videos step by step by step by step, because like, yeah, I consume courses this way too, or I just jump in, See, sort of, out of everything that's available, what do I need the most? Go there, focus on that, and then move on to something else. And often it's like all over the map. They're they're not at all in order. So, mm-hmm. And I think a lot of my own students function that way too, and are coming in at totally different stages often. So that's really great advice. Mm. So to to speak to that like transformative result. I think as course creators, that's what we're communicating often is like, this is a transformative result. Here's what's possible. Here are all my like shiny testimonials of my most successful students ever. You could be one of them. And yet we also know that most testimonials are atypical and not necessarily a reflection of the majority of students who take a course. So what are your opinions on this? Like, should we be using testimonials that are more diverse in terms of results or like from a marketing perspective, do we just go hard? We have the best testimonials we can possibly run with that and, and hope that we can do whatever we, we can to help our students achieve those
2: things. I like it's kind of an ethical question for you, for yourself, right? Is that you need to make a decision on that in regards to how you feel about that, right? As a course creator. Um, and depends on what you, what your average journey actually looks like, right? Like we do know that not everybody is going to succeed. Like that's just not everyone will succeed. There will be a subset of people that no matter what you do, they're not going to succeed, right? Even literacy rates are still only at 99%. It's a very small subset of the population that never learns how to read. But there is a subset of the population that never learns how to read. So I think that there is that acceptance that there will be some people that are never going to to be able to get this result. And then it just becomes, if you have data on how many people, because I think that can be really persuasive too, right? That, you know, 83% of people, you know, create a quiz, right? And that I think is also, sometimes I think just like collecting that data and then sharing it alongside our atypical testimonials. Yeah, maybe, maybe I'm not going to be Jenna Kucher or Amy Porterfield um, as far as like what my results are. And I probably know that, right? And I probably know looking at those testimonials that, you know, maybe I'm not going to get my course out. And I don't know, somebody else is like, hey, yeah, you're going to get your course out in 30 days. Oh, maybe not. But, you know, if I see that stat that's average, I'm like, yeah, but 80% of people create a course. You're like, oh, okay, well, maybe I'm not going to get it done in 30 days, but I'm probably going to have a course eventually, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So I think, like, gathering that data can be helpful. And then I think the other marketing side of those atypical testimonials is to look at the external constraints to those people and see if you can start to figure out what they were. So I like, I mentioned Amy Porterfield and Jenna Kucher that maybe they have really great audiences that that's part of what gets communicated in the course that look, you know, you need to also be audience building at the same time, right. That you, you know, and you can communicate that at the beginning, like what's your audience at? Well, if your audience is at, you know, my subscriber total of, I think six with me and my husband's emails, both on it, I am not going to have a great offer coming out, <laughs> right? Like I need to do some list building here, people, right? Before I'm going to get anything. So if you can communicate some of what those externals are, and those externals can be great for figuring out if you have a next offer, well, if you know what some of those externals were, if you can nurture some of those external constraints, so that intentionally nurture them. If it's like, okay, people need a list, intentionally nurture some of that, add some of that into your coaching calls of like, Hey, Where's your list? What's the block for having a list building this week, right? And like intentionally nurture some of those conditions so that they're ready for the next offer. And so that when they do finish your transformative result, that they get closer to an atypical testimonial because they fix. Because usually atypical testimonials have some sort of external constraint around them, right? Like whether that's my freelancer with a great referral network, whether that's somebody who um, launches a quiz with, you know, a 20,000 person email list right? Those are both kind of external constraints that are, they're not like, they're not like my height. Like I have effects. Like I can affect how many people get on my list. I can't really grow any taller, mm-hmm. you know, but I can affect how many people are on my email list. Right. So if I know so that's an external of- constraint, can I clarify
0: an external yeah. constraint then could be a positive thing? It's, is it, it, is it like an external, it's an external influence?
2: It's Create right. your success that's outside of yourself. Okay, cool. That could be positive. I'm sorry. I'm to use a different word, the constraint. Yeah. You're so lovely to help me be on, my, <laughs> on the podcast. Cause like I, I totally, I'm totally. still working through my language. Um, Another that's way to think of it is great. like sometimes.
0: Yeah, I would have assumed that like an external constraint
2: is a limiting factor, a limiting yeah. externality. Well, the really interesting thing, I just read outliers by Malcolm Gladwell and talking about height is that external constraints only limiting for so long so like in the nba he uses the example that someone who's 6'1 in the nba you probably need to be at least 6'1 to really function in the nba but you know and then uh, every inch helps but by the time it gets you at six foot five it doesn't really matter anymore Mm -hmm. right so there is a point at which things stop mattering and it's kind of interesting to think of these external factors i suppose that create both outliers positively and outliers negatively, right? And how? At what point do they stop being limiting factors, mm-hmm. right? At what point does it just be you need to be this good? But you know, being any higher than you know, being any taller than six foot five isn't really going to help you any in the NBA. But being shorter than six foot one is probably going to be like a non-starter. So it's like, yes. where where are our external factors that you know? really affect someone's, someone's ability to perform and same thing around offer, right? Like for list, like how big a list do you need to make six figures? Right. And right. that answer will be different, mm-hmm. right. Depending on a variety of factors. Right. So it's like, where, where, what, like, where's that kind of sweet spot that you need to get someone to, but that they are going to anything more is just going to be, you know, gravy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I feel like Sean no. you thought you had something, so i want to let you go there. You had a hat. Well, no, I was
0: thinking about this from that lens of like, it's only positive for long. Like there's so many just examples that come to mind, but one big one is with people who are like, like we know the Dunning-Kruger effect there's like Mount stupid, right. Where you think, you know, much of what there is to know, and yet you're actually like largely ignorant of a lot of the reality of the the subject matter. So Mount, but Mount Stuart is almost like can be a good place to be for people because when you get over here where that that curve drops, and suddenly you're like, oh my god, I. Know nothing, like, but actually, you know a lot. You know a lot more than most people. And so it's like the curse of the expert is that they are so close to the subject that they think, like, oh, I still have so much to learn. And they they don't share. And or when they do share, they share things that are too advanced for much of their audience. Or like, it's over their heads. They're using language that doesn't connect. And like, the level of their expertise. And intimacy with the subject actually becomes a problem, whereas a few steps before it was their doorway into a whole lot of
2: possibilities. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just hard, right? I think like, just like marketing, teaching is hard, whether you're doing it online, whether you're not doing it online. Mm-hmm. And I think when you start talking about teaching for, for profit, it is hard, right? And I think it's hard to understand because like sometimes those people are willing to go out and try things that are, I love that term, bound stupid. They're on there and they're willing to go out and try and they get better results simply because they're willing to go out and fail forward. Right. So that that's like starts coming down to mindset, right. Of like, what, what are the mindsets that we need? What are the mindsets that we can start to nurture and coach? Cause they're different, right. For depending on what you want to do and what you want people to be able to do. But the, the Dunning-Kruger effect, yeah, I I just as a teacher, I just can't get behind it. Like, I know that it like probably is helpful at times, but I'm just like, I'm like, oh, no, I still want you to learn as much as possible.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> for sure. Makes me think about offer stacks. And like bonuses rather than or maybe on top of cross-selling and upselling. Um, like you know, like we know like DCA and then she sells like whatever list builders society or or what have you, right? And like we do know, yes, if you have a million people following you on social, you're way more likely to get way more on your list with your quiz than if you don't have any people following on social. So it's just made me think like, what could be like, okay, so you figure out what the external factors are and then can you build your like bonus structure around um, offering some teachings around that? And then maybe after you sell your course, You go out there and and break up those bonuses to the people who didn't take the course, Mm -hmm. and like sell those bonuses to get people ready, say to get like to get into Grow with Quizzes or something, right? Like, okay, they're they like Grow with Quizzes will help, but it would be better for them if they already had whatever a thousand people following them on social who don't have them on their email list. Like, you don't like not not that a quiz can't help if you already have an email list, but it would be more helpful you had a big audience somewhere and then you wanted to pull them into the, you know, the thing you own, like like, like we speak about. Yeah, so like as an affiliate marketer, that's my new thing. I've decided I'm an affiliate marketer and I'll I just it. <laughs> sell other people's stuff. But as an affiliate marketer, it's like maybe I can create things that get people closer to the point where they get those success conditions for, um, say, grow with quizzes, right?
2: Yeah, I think it's a brilliant um, idea, right? Because then you're getting them, like you kind of taking that transformative result and just breaking it down into like smaller milestones, Mm -hmm. you know, that you're right. Like maybe they need a thousand people on social. That's great. And then once, and then I think every time we get those wins, we can create momentum. Mm -hmm. And then if they have that thousand people, they're just that much more likely to be that much closer to doing that audience research. All of a sudden they're like, they have these thousand people. They can, you can be like, Oh great, you came from Dawn. That's amazing. Dawn does all this work to get you your first thousand people. Well, let's take a look at the posts you created going through that course and see which ones did well. Oh, that's amazing. Then those that's kind of what's resonating, and you can start to build, you know, you can just take kind of brick by brick along the, the path to that really big result. And you just kind of backwards, it's actually called backwards design. You backwards design it. Um down the little path until you first start at the the zero, right? And then you can help people through.
1: And my disclaimer though, is that you don't need a thousand followers to get a lot out of Shanti's course either, actually. I'm sorry, Don. No, no, I'm the one who said that. I just want to be clear, like that isn't actually something, but it is something that where you can get like, that's that's where you can get this like Amy Porterfield number of like quiz leads is because it's you know, it's she's got whatever a million followers on Instagram and then also drops the quiz in the podcast on the regular or or something like that. Right. So there is. Yeah. I, can we talk a little bit of about success conditions? Because we had a consultation before I launched the den and we were talking about success conditions and you were like, well, you need to pay attention to the live one-on-one calls and what people say they want and then like actually make a list and then keep on top of it when you meet with them again because that's what you do in school right Is like you you have a list of what's going on with all your students and that way when it's time to write the report card you can be like oh yeah maverick did really well he's you know really listening in class more than he used to or what have you right (laughs) i actually
2: was more detailed than that like after this conversation um if I if I'm like I feel like there's kind of you're gonna do it like super high touch as much as you know a K to 12 teacher would be as high touch is that I would have known <laughs> I would have had an assessment created so I would know a what you, what the transformative result I wanted you to be able to do let's say add three digit numbers I would have then had a diagnostic probably to see how well you were doing and if if you needed any extra help maybe I gave you some blocks to help you add numbers. And then I would have that written down and then I would see if I could take away your blocks and then I would write that down too until I could see and report whether you were or were not adding three digit numbers, right? To keep on top of really what's creating success for you, right? And hopefully I've done it because like, I had you know, 30 students in my class or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I kind of knew exactly what you needed in order to be able to do that. Um, and I think that's kind of where some automated stuff could live, is if you're paying really close attention to your atypical testimonials for their external factors or constraints, and then you're paying really close attention to the questions that people are asking you, and you have an idea of your learner journey that you can then start to put those pieces together and automate an email sequence and build it out of like, okay, and then you build it even farther back to like what question? What was those two? So I know. My typical testimonial, I know their external factor. So I have to ask about that in my launch quiz. And then I know from coaching calls that this is a mindset block that people have. So I know that we need to do that. And I know that from my coaching calls that people email me and say, I had this aha moment when I did that audience research. And then you can start to automate out some of that movement into you know where they need to go and you know to hopefully automate that learner journey along with a lot of data based on what you've seen from from your atypical testimonials, from their questions on coaching calls, from the aha moments when they've reached out to you and then to your quiz data on what your audience has told you about themselves a little bit more so you can then connect all the dots and hopefully automate it.
0: So much fun. Yeah. I love nerding out on all of the data and i in that phase as I like prepare to relaunch where I'm like looking at the surveys and at at a few different steps, like, or uh, sorry, at a few different stages. So like before starting the course, midpoint at the end, as well as, um, and this is more on the marketing side, but like, uh, why didn't you, why didn't you buy? Aside Mm -hmm. from money, why didn't you make this choice. And yeah, the information is so it's almost too much. It's like, wow, there are so many improvements I could make. And yet I only have this amount of time. There's only one of me. So it's kind of figuring out what to prioritize, but yeah, it's, it's a really cool place to be once you've, you know, you've gotten over the hump of launching for the first time running a course for the first time or first few times and then starting to look at like, all right, where could this be optimized and Mm. where could I do better?
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, I think for me, it's always like that first, if you can get a little bit of information and get somebody into your course, even if you don't revise the course at all, (laughs) like you just keep the course exactly identical. You keep all your videos, you don't re-record anything. If you can even just get them from the data that you have, and then give them like those quick questions that you know, make a difference to where they need to start. Right. Cause like some people might like really sail right through understanding their offers. Right. They might, they might have really great converting offers. And I'm like, yeah, I just like plug those offers in. And I know so much about my audience and they're like off to the races. Right. Um, and so just being able to get those people moving as quickly as possible and then to help the people that aren't moving as quickly to know who's moving, who's going to move really quickly and then just like push them through so they get their result, know who's going to move kind of slow and then, you know, push them to some of those mindset bonuses that we were talking about. And then, you know, to have something in place so you know who's going to move fast, who's going to move slow. And that can just be like a really fast way of just like, you don't even have to rewrite a course at that point. You just write a little assessment and then tell them where to go.
1: Ooh, I like that. yeah,
2: I'm really inspired to do something like that I
1: think
0: that.
2: Yeah, but it's so fast and like it's just super simple. Yeah, often like I find with course creators they're, they're so close to their bet like their beta is often and to their first launches but they often know. like it's like, I don't know, I sometimes feel even as copywriters, that sometimes once you get some best practices in place, um even if you don't know, even if you haven't review mind 18 million reviews and done, you know, 500 surveys, And, you know, done eight customer interviews that you can still get a better result for somebody Mm -hmm. just by adding some best practices and taking a look at a a few pieces rather than trying to, I guess, Joanna Weave the whole thing, even though I love Joanna Weave.
1: Totally. Feels like um, really important information that kind of gets glossed over in this whole, like, you can just have a digital course and make lots of money and transform all these lives. And what I think I love about what we're talking about is like, A lot of the things we're doing, sure, maybe it's so you can like upsell one day or something, but it's actually just getting more people to these atypical testimonial results and not in a because I need more testimonials that sound like this, but in a because like this is the transformation people really want. They want to go from no list Again, just the example of growth quizzes, because that's what I'm closest to, too. But they want to go from like no list or hardly any list to like a large segmented list. Right. And it's like I just I think I think also in online courses, there are a lot of um, aha moments that have nothing to do with the end transformation or at least like they they contribute contribute that's a hard word for me to the end transformation but you don't even need to get your quiz written in order to get to a place where like you know we like got this like great like copywriting 101 thing in in that course too right and so like even if you never finished your quiz but your emails got better that might be enough for your business to do a lot better and so like being able to dig into data but also just like you said like listening into the coaching calls when people show up and they're like oh my god this was so awesome total game changer for my business and then they and they might never get to that like you know vanity metric of like i finished the course and you can give me a gold star now um there might be yeah there might be a lot there i also think understanding why adults want to learn and this comes back to that first question where you're like i'm a five I love going down rabbit holes and learning as much as possible. It almost at, like, and I know Jay is a person who like has created a lot of stuff and then not put it out there, but probably had so much joy in the creating. I totally um, do, yeah. Right? When and you like, said you didn't want to create the course. I'm like, oh, but that's the fun
2: part, Dawn. How yeah. could you only want to sell the course? It's the fun part. It's the unit planning, Dawn. That's the fun part. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I think the fun part is the coaching calls, right? Like we all have our, <laughs> our, 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 fun parts, but yeah. Yeah. Really cool. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. And I think like, also when those people are getting to smaller aha moments is that it doesn't mean even if they don't get the big result, it doesn't mean that they're not ready to buy something else from you potentially. Mm-hmm. Right. Like um, just because somebody hasn't gotten to that point yet, uh, doesn't mean that they're not ready to, You know, be in a membership with you potentially or something even lower ticket, right? Like, um, I just bought a Reels membership because I'm trying to do more Instagram Reels, and like it's it's like a no brainer price point. We're talking price points, it's like $12 a month, so it's like super low. And she just sends me an email with like real trending Reels twice a month. Oh, yeah, right, but like super valuable to me, right? So, like, if you know some of that about parts of your audience. You might be able to give them a no-brainer sort of a thing that can be, you know, you might not even have to create that, right? Like you might be able to outsource all of that, but, and they don't need to have completed their quiz, but you know that they took that copywriting module and you know a little bit more about them that they probably didn't have a lot of copywriting experience beforehand. Now that they've learned copywriting from you, you're very trustworthy. And then you could sell them, I don't know, like a newsletter membership. That they get their small business newsletter template, you know, once a month with four templates for them or something, right? So like, I guess I think it opens up, I think you're right. Like when you open up your mind to more than just that atypical transformative result, you open up your offer ecosystem too. And you open up your understanding of your audience and their needs. And it just gets closer and closer to being, I guess, not just customer, you know, growth, but learner growth. Mm. Yeah, I've had that happen just in so many, in so many
0: different ways where a student has, you know, achieved like a small win and then wanted to work with me in some other capacity, or it's even just like stuck around in my own ecosystem and remained like connected and responding to emails. And like, clearly there's like a sense of, of, I guess, loyalty, because something, some even small transformation occurred, uh, yeah, which as a think- teacher is such an in- incredible gift that you don't really, I didn't think about before
2: embarking on this. But it's a gift is marketers like, too. Yeah. like Getting somebody yeah. to those small quick wins really quickly means they don't churn right away which is a great like thing to have some more retention. But the other thing is if you are really like some of these tripwire funnels are upselling so aggressively that people leave your ecosystem. They may have even purchased from you a $27 course, but you have upsold so, someone just told me this. They were saying that she's left like four course creators. She's like, I was upsold so aggressively that I refuse to stay in their ecosystem, Mm -hmm. right? That yes, upselling, it should be part of your business, but once you've gotten a win, I'm like trying this like new tagline: educate first, market second. Mm-hmm. Right? Like even when we're thinking of our webinars, educate first, market second. Paid paid okay. to launch bootcamp, same thing. Educate in okay. your little bootcamp first, market second. Even if you market like aggressively, like Amy Porterfield just marketed DCA pretty aggressively, and yet I don't necessarily feel like I hate her even though I've, you know, I've gotten a lot of emails to Amy Porterfield recently and I was in her bootcamp, but I don't feel at the end of that, that I'm like, oh no, I'm never going to buy anything from Amy. Cause it was just too much upselling. I was like, no, I was like, oh yeah, I got like a few things out of there. I'm not ready for DCA right now, but you know, I enjoyed the, like, you know, I enjoyed her do something different. I like was on the odd mindset call. Right. But you know, I still got like something tangible out of that. That's not, oh no, I need to just leave her ecosystem entirely because she sent me 60 emails in the past two weeks Mm. yeah
1: yeah totally speaking of Amy she had that like email that came afterwards and I didn't read any of the DCA launch emails because I've been involved with that enough times but it was like I'm so grateful for you I know I sent you a lot of emails and you're still here and I was like oh this is good like That was a good that I feel like we ignore that a lot of the time people are either like afraid of spamming people or just like throwing emails at them and not really even like acknowledging the fact that they just like, like, you know, hit you with like a million snowballs of emails in the last two weeks. So I thought, yeah, I thought that was really cool. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And it makes you feel better, right? Like it makes you feel like you're like, oh yeah, I do want to like, thank you for recognizing that. And I think I want to hang out more with you because you recognize that that was, you know, real for me, right? And I think that's the other thing when we talk about getting those aha moments and those small wins is that they're, it's like you feel really seen when somebody can give you that, Mm -hmm. right? But the, the really tricky part, I think about this without that piece of like knowing that the slight difference in between our audiences is that one person's aha moment another person's old hat. Mm. So it's just, you just, it's just about knowing that's where quizzes come in. Right. Cause you can, so, you know, specifically segment your audience to get them onboarded in a very personalized sort of a way.
0: Yeah. Wow. So many nuggets of absolute brilliance. Thank you so much, <laughs> Jay. This is great. Really, really interesting stuff. I think our listeners, are going to be taking notes and following up and wanting to learn more from you. So
2: where can they do that? (laughs) I have my own quiz now. Um, So they can go to jkcopy.com and um, they have a quiz about post-launch strategies. So, yeah, Um, it's titled, uh, Are You Ready? Like, If Your Course Launch Fails, Are You Ready to Make Bank? So just kind of thinking about what are some strategies you can put in place in your course, no matter where you're at, to be able to be profitable, even because, you know, I do think it's sad. Like I, as a launch copywriter, I think that would break my heart. When I first started copywriting, it would break my heart when people would go into courses and then they wouldn't get anything out of them. That broke my heart. And then as I became a copywriter and worked with more clients, what started to break my heart too was people that would put a ton of effort and money into launches and get nothing out of them. That also breaks my heart. Right, because people, the courses are babies too, right? Like we love them and we put so much energy into them and we put so much money and time that we obviously love the subject matter and we want it to to fly. So how can it continue to fly even if your course launch was not the mythical unicorn of six figures of glorious brilliance? You know, if you had, you know, your eight hundred dollar launch, how can you continue to grow your ecosystem? And the people that are connected with you, which is like kind of downside about how to help grow people as to the best transformative versions of themselves. Yeah. So cool. So important
0: and often overlooked. So thank you so much JK for your copy. Go check it out. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you
2: so much for being here.
1: Mm, Thank you, Jay. So nice to chat with you. Thank you so much
2: for having me on the podcast and helping me work through some of my ideas because they're still new on my end too. So thank you so much for providing this space to chat and all your wonderful, beautiful questions that you held space for me and gave me a place to you know, share some of my expertise um, that comes out of being a teacher. I feel like there's some teacher superpower there that I have to own. So thank you so much for giving me space to do that.
1: Oh yeah, let's own our superpowers, friends. And we will see you or speak with you again
0: <laughs> Whoa, look at you listening to the very end. We are so deeply grateful for you and borderline obsessed with hearing what resonated most and how you're taking the seeds planted in these conversations and sowing them in your life and business. It would mean more than you know if you would share this episode with a friend or subscribe, rate, leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Your reviews tell the algos behind the apps that we are worth pressing play on. So please, if you're feeling generous, take two minutes to share the love. And if you are curious around what your unique advantage is in this wild and wacky online world, take the unfair advantage quiz at shandyzack.com forward slash UA quiz. And thank you again, sunshine. Go light up the world and we'll see you next time.